teenage boy was riding his motorbike up the mountain road that led to his parents' vacation cabin, so said the newspaper account. He was an hour late for dinner, and he knew his parents would be concerned about his absence, tardiness. On the other end of the road at the cabin, the father and mother were getting concerned. They were anxious. It wasn't like their son to be tardy, and they knew that they were in strange surroundings and feared that he might be lost. And so the father got in the family automobile to go and look for the son. He started down the same mountain road the boy was traveling up, and they came together on a hairpin curve on the side of that mountain. And the result of that violent collision left the boy dead and the father to grieve away the rest of his life. I think that might be more than just the newspaper account of a terrible accident. I think it might be the parable of many of the modern homes. On the one hand, here is a husband who is desperately trying to communicate with his wife, trying to reach her. On the other hand is a wife who does not feel intimacy and respect, trying desperately to reach out to her husband. On the one hand are parents who are trying their best to bridge the generation gap and communicate with their children and reach them. On the other hand are young people, are children, who are going through the toughest times of life and are honestly wanting to be loved and felt and experience that kind of relationship with their parents. And they're reaching out to them. And the result has been the most violent collision in the history of the human race. I didn't learn a lot in physics, and as a matter of fact, I didn't even know what I'm about to say was really true or not until I checked it with a physics professor this morning. But I learned that water will not rise higher than the level of its source. That's why you have the water tower in the tallest part of the town. Water will not rise higher than the level of its source. And because a nation will not rise higher than the level of its source, because this church will not rise higher than the level of its source, the home, it is imperative that we pause in the midst of what we're doing and what we're about here and preach a message today on the Christian home. I have chosen three of the most trite cliches you've ever heard that just kind of swarm around the subject of the family and the home like bees around a honeycomb. And I want to use these cliches this morning kind of like hooks on which to hang the ideas of this sermon on the home. The first is there's no place like home. Second, 
charity or love begins at home. And then at the end of this sermon, I want us to ask God to show us the way to go home. There's no place like home. The home has been heralded as the great bulwark of American society. The home has been suggested as the answer to all of our problems and the cure for all of our ills in the past. The home has been exalted in poetry and prose. We have exalted it in the past. But somewhere along the way, we've kind of shoved aside the home and we've kind of treated it like a grandfather clock, kind of pushed it over in the corner, and we've just assumed that it'll always go, go on ticking without any care or we are rewinding. When the fact of the matter is, the home as we have always known it is on its way out. The truth of the matter is the family institution and the marriage institution as we have known it historically is on its way out, is dead. Lyle Schaller in his frightening book entitled The Impact of the Future says, an impressive array of evidence can now be supported can now be presented to support the contention that the home is being subject, subjected to unprecedented changes that will drastically alter its form and function in the future. What strange voices I am hearing that we are witnessing the demise of the family. And underneath it all and at the heart of it is the influence of urbanization. Notice this. There was a time when the home was the producer of everything. The home was the producer of the food. You grew, raised your food at home. The home was the producer of the fun. You had fun as a family. The home was the center and the source of the beginning of education and was the producer of religious instruction and example. And you could learn just about any kind of vocational apprenticeship right there in your own home. And then there began to be, with urbanization, the shift from that so that the home is no longer the producer of the food. The canneries and the factories do that. And the parks and recreation commissions in the cities take care of the fun. And we take the children to public schools for education. And of course, the church is the place where they learn religious instruction and so no longer is the home the producer. The home is the consumer at the mercy of an urbanized society. There's no place like home. Is there any truth to that? Or is that just a worn out cliche without any substance? 
I submit to you there's no place like home with regard to education. Now, I don't want to deprecate public school education. I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. And living right here in the shadows of this great educational institution, I would be pretty stupid to try to diminish education, uh, public school education. But I think the educators will support me in this contention that where you have parents who are committed to the training of their children and are sensitive to those teachable moments in their lives, their parents are the greatest teachers that children will ever have. And I think they'll support this contention that where you have parents that are committed to the discipline and training of their children and are sensitive to those teachable moments and respond to them, can teach their children more at home 15 minutes than they can get in an hour in a classroom. There's no place like home with regard to education. There's no place like home with regard to recreation. Can you remember ever having fun as a family? From the back seat of my car one day, on the way home after a little outing, came this pitiful request. Let's don't go home. Let's have some fun. For the children, you can't have fun at home. It's just, I can't wait till I leave the house where it's boring and dull so we can have some, get where the action is. And for the adults, just watch them on Friday afternoon in the cities and there's a mass exodus out of the cities to the lakes and the recreational spots. For we've forgotten how to have fun as a family. I don't, have, I don't have many memories of my childhood. Didn't really have a whole lot in childhood. But one of the most profound memories I have today are those cold winter nights when our family would gather in a little farmhouse and play dominoes or pickup sticks. Can you turn that television off long enough to have some fun as a family? I mean, after today, you know. <laughs> C.A. Roberts said that one summer he took his family from Tallahassee, Florida to Los Angeles on a summer vacation. He said they went to Disneyland, they saw the Dodgers play, they went swimming on the beach, cost them $1,000. He said when school started a couple of weeks after their vacation and their junior high student was asked to give it a little essay on what she enjoyed most about the summer vacation, this is what she said. I enjoyed most about our vacation were the little family games we played in the car on the way to California and back 
And C.A. Roberts said, if I'd have known that, we could have just drove around in Tallahassee and saved myself a thousand dollars. Can you turn that television off long enough to recapture some fun? There's no place like home with regard to religious education. Now, I know what you're thinking. If we just keep them in church. But I'm here to tell you that if you're not teaching your children in the home the precepts and principles of God, if you're not instructing them with your lips and exemplifying Christ with your life, they're not going to get it at church. We don't have them long enough. We're not prepared well enough. We're not equipped to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you're not, as a matter of fact, this commandment was not directed toward the church. It was directed toward parents, primarily the father. You remember that marvelous story about Rachel and Jacob? They finally had to elope. You know the story from junior Sunday school. They finally had to run away to get married. But before they left, Rachel went back into her father's house and got the family idols off of the shelf and smuggled them out with her. Now, I don't know why she took those pagan idols with her or not, Maybe they reminded her of the times of her family fellowship. Maybe they were just keepsakes. Maybe they were suggestive of the days when in crisis moments they gathered around and prayed to those idols. I don't know why she smuggled them away. But isn't it tragic that out there in that strange land, the only gods that beautiful girl had to take with her were pagan idols. I must ask you this question. Are you listening? When your sons and daughters get out into that strange new land of vocation or education, what kind of gods are they carrying with them? R.A. Torrey, the great Baptist preacher of the turn of this century, was not always committed to God. As a matter of fact, he was a rebel. And he was running away from home one day when his mother came in, gave him a Bible and said, R.A., I want you to carry my Bible with you and when the hour gets the darkest and the time gets the roughest, if you'll call on your mother's God, you'll get help. He wasted his substance in riotous living like the prodigal in the far country. And he thought one day, I'll just take my life and get out of my misery. But before he did, he remembered his mother and he got her Bible on his knees in his room. This was his prayer. Oh God of my mother, whoever you are, wherever you are, the hour is so dark and the times are so rough. Will you help me? Can I ask you this question, men, fathers? When the hour gets dark and the time gets rough for your son, can he call on his father's God and get help? I must ask you this, mother. When the hour gets tough and the days get rough, 
Can your daughter call on her mother's God and find help? There's no place like home. There's a second cliche. Love, charity begins at home. Every time we have a, a mission emphasis, I hear that. Well, I think we ought to take care of the folks at home first. And that's right. That's just a cliche, really, to some degree. Charity or love begins at home. But it certainly is true with regard to the home. These words of our text, submission, honor, obedience, all spell love. For if there is one thing that must pervade and influence everything that goes on in your home, it must be love. You've heard this. A man went to a psychiatrist and asked, I want you to tell me, sir, What's the best thing I can do for my children? I want them to be healthy and normal and happy. What is the best thing I can do for my children? Tell me. And the psychiatrist said, The best thing you can do, sir, for your children is love their mother. I was watching Candid Camera one time. That'll date me. And they had this preschool group on Candid Camera, five-year-olds. And they were just kind of watching them with a candid camera. And there was one little girl in that group that was just so dynamic and effervescent and enthusiastic. She was just the leader of the group. She just quivered with enthusiasm. So they just kind of focused on her. But got the others, bless their heart, just focused on her. And at the end of the program, they interviewed her. And this was the question. Isn't this interesting? Well, isn't it kind of interesting? They said, Honey, does your mother love your daddy? She said, Oh, yes, mother loves daddy. And they said, Does your daddy love your mother? And they said, Oh, she said, Oh, yes, daddy loves mother. Well, he said, How do you know your mother and daddy love each other? And she said, well, they just go kissing all over the house. Do you think there's some connection between the dynamic, effervescent, enthusiastic, healthy, normal child and the love she sends between her father and mother? You think there's any connection? You can bet the farm and the ranch there is a connection. He says in the text, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, that sacrificially, He gave Himself up for her. He said, Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. That means two things. It means that you're sensitive to her hurts. If something hurts your body, you're sensitive to that. If you love your wife like you love your own body, what hurts her hurts you. If you love your wife like you love your own body, you're sensitive to her needs. For when your body has a need, you are sensitive to that. He's saying that the husband is to be the lover and the leader of his wife. If he's a lover and not a leader, he's a sentimentalist. If he's a leader and not a lover, he's a dictator. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church.
And then he said, wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, I've heard a lot of strange things about that, but I think that what is involved in that statement is that the number one person in the wife's life ought to be her husband. And the place that God has placed her to do her work is in the home, her husband's home. And she's to build up for him and for her children a stronghold amid life storms and stresses. His home is a kingdom within a world a sanctuary, even a refuge. If there's one person that a guy has in his life that believes in him when nobody else believes in him, when he doesn't even believe in himself, it ought to be his wife. And when he comes home at night, you know, beaten down, she ought to be the one that boosts him up, dusts him off and sends him back. Hey, how about trying this? How about in the morning, girls, when the alarm clock rings, reach over and turn that alarm off. And reach over there in that jar, you know, on the dresser where your face is, and put your face on them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and put you on a little Chanel number no. five. <laughs> and uh, start the bacon cooking in the kitchen. And the aroma of that bacon will just mix just perfectly with the Chanel number no. five. And when he gets dressed and starts out the door to work, give him a little nudge and say, Go get him, Tiger. See how that works tomorrow. <laughs> I said this in a little church in Castle Rock, Washington, one time, and there was the organist, little bitty lady, had three children, sweetest thing in the world, came up to me the next night at church, kind of shy, and said, Pastor, I put a note in my husband's lunch pail today. And I said, well, what did you say? And she said, I said, go get them, Tiger. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Children, listen to me. Obey your parents, for this is right. That's the command of God. Honor your father and mother. And the command of obedience precedes honor. Obeying is what you do. Honoring is how you feel. And when you begin to obey your parents because it is a command of God, you'll begin to feel better toward them. You'll begin to honor. Now if it's true that the foundation of the home must be love, Stay right with me. It is also true that the absence of love in the home is its detriment. A husband and wife team by the name of Sorokin did an investigation. It took them five years to do it. They studied, ten, uh, they studied a thousand young people. Five hundred were delinquents. Five hundred were not. They found several... Uh, startling facts. One was that delinquency is, is relative. Delinquency doesn't mean that you grew up on the wrong side of the track. Some half of the delinquents 
were from the best part of town. But some of the most startling facts were these. Listen carefully. 60% of the delinquent boys hated their father. And 90% of the delinquents, 90% of them said that they felt no love in their home, neither between the father and mother, nor between the parents and them. And so Calvin Miller went out one night knocking on doors. When he knocked on this particular door of this pastor in Lincoln, Nebraska, it didn't take him long to have the door slammed in his face. And the man said, I don't have time for your God-Jesus business. I have no need for that kind of four-letter word. And Calvin Miller went on his way. In that home was a 17-year-old boy. One day he came home from school. The house was empty. Father and mother were mo gone most of the time. He went into his room, took a gun out of the gun cabinet, put it in his mouth, and took a shortcut to eternity. He left a note on his flannel shirt. When his parents came in, they didn't really miss him because he stayed in his room most of the time anyway. But when dinner was ready, they called him, no answer. They found the door locked. When they forced it open, they made the grisly discovery. And when they read the note, it read, I can live no longer in this loveless home. Now I come to the last cliche. Show me the way to go home. Now it is obvious to me, I don't know if it is to you or not, it's obvious to me when you turn the pages of this New Testament, you're going to find reference after reference after reference to instruction concerning parent-child, child-parent, husband-wife relationship. Evidently, the people who wrote this book and the Holy Spirit who inspired it understood that the kind of relationship we must have in the home between husband and wife and parent and children and children and parent doesn't just come automatically. It's something you learn. It's something you work at. It's something you have to have help in accomplishing for the normal reaction of a man to his wife is not to love her as his own body. And the normal response of a woman to her husband is not to be subject unto him. She wants her own way. And the normal response of children to parents is not to obey them. I want my rights and the normal response of parents to children is to lord it over them and provoke them to anger. And I'm here to tell you today, if you are the kind of parent and the kind of child and the kind of husband, wife, you need to be and must be. It'll have to come through the help of Almighty God. I don't know how people make it 
as parents and as partners in marriage without God's help. There was a time when I was in a scent. I pastored a church, large church, when I was 28, and I was going to the top, neglecting my own parent, my own family. I came to this conclusion that if I fail as a husband and as a parent, in the economy of God, I am a failure. And I may succeed in every other thing, but if I fail as a parent, as a husband, I'm a failure in the most important place in the world. And so my prayer, would you join me in it this morning, is this, oh God, show me how to go home. Show me how to be a loving husband. Show me how to be a godly parent. Show me how and give me strength to be the kind of husband and parent you want me to be. Oh God, that's number one in my priority. Would you pray that? This and then I'm through. When I was living, going to seminary, I was invited to preach a revival in southeast Dallas in a little church over there. Happened to meet the preacher and, and it was one of the worst, some of the worst conditions I've ever seen in any place. Um, southeast Dallas, now that thing has taken over with industry, but it was a little church right in the ghetto and they they children came to church in gangs. They just, you know, they'd walk around, cut up, and just destroy the church service. It was unbelievable. About two weeks before I went there to preach that revival, I was reading the Fort Worth Star Telegram, had a picture on the front page. Isn't it strange how God works things out? There was a picture of this mangled sports car and a girl's picture there who was killed in a wreck, a car wreck, out in DeSoto, Texas, north of Dallas, south of Dallas. And it just so happened that that girl who played hooky from school with those two guys got in a sports car and crashed it, lived with her father and her stepmother next door to the church, like it was just right out there in this little church. Her, mother, her stepmother was an alcoholic. We made an appointment to visit them. Both of them were unsaved. We got there just at dark, just before church started, after he'd gotten off work. He's a, he's a welder, and, and, and when we got there, she was already drunk. She'd been drinking all day, drank all the time. Never one time did she ever look at us, not one time. And he was eating his supper. It, I, I can remember it forever. He was eating fish sticks, English peas, and cornbread. And he was drinking iced tea out of a big old tin can. And he was eating like he hadn't eaten in a week. I mean, he was woofing it down, is what we called it. And he'd take a bite of those fish sticks and English peas and cornbread, and then he'd say, I don't understand it. My daughter's dead today. And those two boys weren't even hurt. Then he'd take another bite. He'd say, I don't see any justice in it all. He'd take another bite. He'd say, I'll tell you this. I'm going to sue them for every penny they've got. I can't bring her back, but I'll make them wish they were dead. And he'd take another bite and he'd say, What kind of God is it 
that would cause this to happen in my daughter's life? What kind of God would do something like that? When we started to leave, we walked to the door, absolutely no response from him with regard to God. He got me by the hand, and it was like a death grip. He like to broke it. <laughs> and he looked me right in the eye and he said, Preacher, do you think God blames me for my daughter's death? And I looked him back in the eye and said, Yes. I must lay it at the heart of every father here this morning. The life of your children are your accountability. Now you say, preacher, you need to tell me what you mean by that. I mean that living a life of ungodliness, brutality, and alcoholism next to the church without any kind of help, instruction, godliness, or influence. Yes, he's accountable to God for her. And I believe this with all my heart, that one day fathers will stand before God and be accountable for their children. And mothers will stand before God and be accountable for their children. And children will stand before God and be accountable for their life. No wonder we should pray, show me the way to go home. Now I'm going to ask you to do the hardest thing you've ever done. As a father, as a husband, I'm going to ask you to do the hardest thing you've ever done. I'm going to ask you to reach over and take your wife's hand and that will be an indication that you want her to come with you and you're coming to lead your family to commit your home to God. On my knees at this very altar yesterday, I prayed that God would give us just 10 families who would say, Pastor, we commit our home to God today. Just take her by the hand. Or maybe you don't have a wife here or a husband. Maybe you don't have parents here. But you'll do what God wants you to do by your home. And when we give our invitation, all I want you to do is just come kneel and pray together. Go back to your seat. And there may be some who need to rededicate their life to Christ. And there may be some who need to unite with this church to find a church home for your home. Men, it's time. And there may be some who need to commit their life to Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. After the prayer, we'll have an invitation. We'll come. Father, in response to your Holy Spirit,
we come today to say, show us the way, Father, give us leadership, give us guidance, and we'll do it. Help us to have a family altar. Help us to be the husband, the father we should be, we must be in these days. Help us to believe this morning that there's no place on earth like home, not our business, not our job, nothing like the home. And so pray, I pray, Father, that you'll give us courage to give it first priority in this very moment. Grant us, Father, a great moving of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts because I ask in Jesus' name for His sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, I'll ask you to stand and I will invite you to come.